In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have another great episode lined up for you. We are going to start off by talking about Biden. Uh, But unlike the way we usually talk about Biden, we're going to be reflecting on the good things that he accomplished in his first year. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) In our second segment, we are going to talk about voter rights, specifically um, the voter legislation that's currently um, up for debate in the Senate. And then finally, we're going to have a philosophical discussion about what the right areas uh, of life and what, what are the right subject matters for legislation. And we're going to try to apply a couple of different theoretical frameworks to help us figure out, you know, what the right areas are to legislate. Nice. I, yeah. I am quite excited about this here episode. It feels like it's going to be, once again, Less depressing than talking about world's biggest uh, human rights calamities. And we're actually doing what we love doing, which is policy deep dives. That's always great. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, I'm, or I guess getting, not policy uh, deep dives, but policy analysis overall. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we had both philosophical analysis and policy analysis in one episode. This reminds me of like the early days of the podcast. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, back um, when things were slightly less depressing. <laughs> well, that's when Trump was president. <laughs> we started the, yeah, we started this in response to like True. Trump becoming president. So, like, I don't know about that. It's like, all right, well, you know, this is as bad as it gets, so, you know, all smooth sailing from here, right? <laughs> Speaking of hopefully something being as bad as it gets, what are the COVID numbers? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, so far in the world, we've hit 338 million cases, which is up from 318 million cases last week. So that's 20 million new cases in a week, uh, which is about 2.85 million new cases per day, um, which is, again, almost three times our highest ever daily new case count uh, prior to December. So it's just the level of transmission at this point is just astronomical. Um, But at the same time, we've hit 5.58 million deaths, which is up from 5.53 million last week. So that's 50,000 new deaths in a week, uh, or about 7,000 deaths a day. So that's still high, um, but it is down from 9,000 deaths per day last week. And it is at least a little bit encouraging that deaths aren't... um, we're not seeing like the, the same kind of spike in deaths that we're seeing in cases, even after a couple of weeks of like really high uh, transmission. Um, that's not yet materializing in deaths, so we can cross our fingers that hopefully it doesn't. Yeah. At, at this point in the world, 61.7 people have at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up from 61.0 last week. So just a 0.7% increase, which is abysmal. Um, In the U.S. at this point, we've hit 69.3 million cases, which is up from 63.7 million last week. 
That's 5.6 million new cases in a week, or about 800,000 cases per day. Again, uh, down a little bit from last week, which was at 940,000 cases per day, but still nearly three times our highest, highest daily new case count prior to December. Um, in terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 879,000 deaths, which is up from 868,000 last week, so 11,000 new deaths in a week, or about 1,600 deaths per day. Um, in terms of vaccination in the U.S., uh, we're at 75% with one dose, which is up from which is up 1% from last week. We're at 63% with two doses, which is flat from last week, and we're at 24% uh, with um, three doses of the vaccine, which is up 1% from last week. So we're just really keeping on. Yeah. Like <laughs> we're seeing just a, a, like the the highest levels of transmission ever in COVID. Um, and this is as bad as it gets, right? One can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can really only like cross our fingers. Like the fa yeah. the fact is that like um new variants are not something we have control over. Yeah. You know, like we could try to like reduce transmission as much as possible and that helps reduce the development of new variants and mutations and stuff. But yeah. Ultimately like there's not that much we can do. It's just a matter of like being prepared yeah. um, and getting people protected. Yeah. Although credit to Biden recently, he yep. uh, made an effort to basically give everyone, what was it, like three free tests mm -hmm. and uh, M95 masks, which, by yeah. the way, that their credit brings us to our first segment. So... One of the things that Michael and I have spent a lot of time doing on this podcast is criticizing Joe Biden. Now, mm -hmm. one of the biggest reasons why we do that is for one of the similar reasons why we would spend so much time criticizing Trump when Trump was president, because Biden's president and he's doing things. And when yeah. you are doing things, when you're in the public eye, it makes sense for you to constantly be criticized and for you to be basically held under a microphone microscope and have yeah. every single one of your moves watch so you don't fuck things up too badly yeah which is basically why we've been doing this however we do recognize that it's an election year and we also recognize the fact that we voted for biden yeah and we encouraged you all to also vote for biden mm -hmm. and you know if you've listened to the podcast you might think were they lying to us? <laughs> like, we're, we're, why did they have us vote for Biden when all they can do is talk about all the bad shit that he's done? So, yeah. and I think that that also does come to the down to the fact that we, like, usually because Michael and I tend to be more policy-minded, policy, which we'll actually talk about this exact fact in the third segment, policy tends to be in place specifically to solve a problem. Yeah. So usually when you talk about policy, it's it's some type of change. And the only reason why you would change something is because there's a problem with the current status quo, mm -hmm. which, okay, that's a redundant statement, the status quo. <laughs> My dad always gets <laughs> I thought you just that. meant. I thought you just meant problem with the status quo is a redundant statement. <laughs> you can have a problem. If you have the status quo, it yeah. is a problem. <laughs> I mean, that too, that too. Uh, However, 
we also do believe in intellectual honesty and we also do believe in giving credit when it's due. I yeah. gave credit to Trump for a few things. The First Step Act. Um, there were some hostages in North Korea that he that he was able to get freed. Uh, the first round of stimulus checks, you know? Yep. Yeah. I'm and sure that, that there's a, maybe one or two other list. things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and fortunately, uh, Biden's list is a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So let's spend some time talking about what are some things that have actually been good about Joe Biden's first year of of the first year of his presidency? Because there yeah. are things that are good. Yeah, and I think it's also like worth putting all this in in you know historical context. Yeah. Like so so the Biden administration circulated this memo um, in throughout Congress, which was like a list of like the things that you know, they're proud of Biden doing in the first year. And it's it's littered with language like, you know, the highest X rate of this thing ever in history. Yeah. And it's like, well, like we're in literally unprecedented times. Yeah. You know, and so like some of these things, some of these things are as extreme as they are. Like some of the successes are extreme as extreme as they are because we started from a really terrible place. When you start from like 20% unemployment, it's not that ridiculous (laughs) to like, to have the, the, you know, most significant improvement in unemployment ever or whatever. Yeah. But the thing is we should keep in mind that none of these accomplishments were inevitable. Yeah. It would have been possible to fuck any of these up. Yeah. And if we had had someone in Trump, like Trump in office, we probably would have fucked a lot of these up. Yeah. And so like, you know, it's worth, you know, keeping in mind the historical context and, and a lower, a lower baseline that we started from, Yeah. but that without a strong leader, and I, I would call Biden in many ways, a strong leader without a strong leader, um, a, a lot of these accomplishments probably wouldn't have materialized or wouldn't have materialized as quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to start out, so one, one thing that I thought was kind of funny while, while I started looking things up, uh, I came across an article. It was an opinion piece by the Washington post. And it was like, it was the 10 best things that Biden did in his first year. And like one of the first ones was uh, drone strikes against Iran. <laughs> what the uh, fuck? <laughs> or, or, or airstrikes, rather, against Iran. Oh, and I'm okay, like, okay, okay. <laughs> I feel like I should read your worst things list. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, I pulled up this this same this same columnist worst things list. And mm-hmm. like the first fucking thing on his worst things list was uh, canceling Operation Legend, which was basically the Trump secret police. Who is this person? <laughs> uh, his name is, I, I don't know how to say it. I, it's Mark Thiessen? Thiessen? Does he, is this <laughs> ironic? <laughs> no, no. Oh man, that's uh, weird. So that, so that's number, th- so I, I act, a lot of these actually, these things that I'm about to say early come directly from this guy's list of the worst things that <laughs> Biden has done, which are actually fucking great. Um, so there's the pushing of vaccine mandates. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, Joe Biden's initial vaccine mandate, which we talked about on the show, 
yes, it did get struck down by the Supreme Court, but it was in place for a, for a while. Yeah. And while it was in place, lots of extra people got vaccinated because they kind of needed yeah. to. Yeah. And there's something to be said for like, even if you don't have a legal mandate, most people don't just follow the law because there's a police officer pointing at them saying, hey, follow the law. They follow the law because they think it's what they should do. You know, like you follow the speed limit, not just because you think you're going to get pulled over. So like, even if like this like was, you know, struck down by the Supreme Court, there's a lot of momentum behind people just getting vaccinated. And to that point, like at the start of the year, a third, only a third of adults were enthusiastic about getting the vaccine. But at this point, 85% of adults have had a shot. So like we have overcome a lot of vaccine hesitancy and I would definitely attribute at least part of that to like the mandates and, and you know, the implied like social good that goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And just the logistical challenge of getting 490 million vaccines administered in the United States. That's like, that's really excellent. And a lot of that goes down to like, you know, the, the localities, the, um, you know, local departments of health and all that stuff. Um, but as we saw, like, in the early stages of the pandemic, without, like, some strong, clear leadership, clear administration and messaging, it's really hard to just even coordinate all of those different interests. And so actually getting vaccines into people's hands can be really challenging. And doing that, you know, with 490 million vaccines is is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Um. Another really big thing is the uh, the spending package the um the the COVID checks? Uh yeah, the American Rescue Plan, which by the way is number three on this particular guy's worst things that Biden. Are did. you kidding? Yeah, me? who is this guy? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, the 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 COVID relief bill, the the uh, the rescue plan, which saved a lot of people from being evicted. It gave people money so that they could continue to live. Yeah. Um, that was an extremely important thing that Biden did. And he did that fast. Yeah. Like right away. I I saw this crazy stat. Um, so Moody's prior to American rescue plan forecasted that in 2021, the U S economy would grow at 2.9%, right? 2.9% GDP growth. Um, after the passage of the U.S. Of the, of the American Rescue Plan, just the COVID bill, right? Yeah, that estimated growth is is now pegged at like five to six percent for 2021, like hmm. double the growth as a result of essentially one spending bill. Yeah, to combat COVID, like that's amazing. Yeah. Um, another thing, and this is something that. I mean, I feel like we could have almost done a whole segment about this at one point, but he was the first president to acknowledge the uh, 1915 genocide against Armenians as a genocide. Hmm. Like wow. every single other president since has been too afraid to piss off Turkey. Mm-hmm. And this has actually been a pretty fucked up stain on like 
the presidential the American presidential history to not acknowledge mm. it for the sake of politics. And look, this is a symbolic victory, but you know what? Yeah, it, I, I, it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's really great. Um, he halted the construction of the uh, Keystone Pipeline, mm-hmm. which yeah, you know, as we've talked about on the show before, like we are at a point in history where we really need to get away from fossil fuels or we are just hopelessly fucked yeah. and a pipeline putting up another permanent installation when we're trying to, when we're trying to get rid of the, um, you know, it, when, when we're trying to get rid of fossil fuels to begin with. I mean, it's like, it's like, I don't know, uh, buying a new butcher knife when you're planning on going vegan. Yeah, <laughs> it's investing in a future that you don't want. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's a little bit easy to lose sight of some of like the progress that we've made on the climate front. Absolutely. Because it's not sufficient. <laughs> but like rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Yes. That's awesome. Like yes. that's a huge deal. And um and not yeah. only is that a huge deal because like yeah, it, it's it's us doing things in order to basically save the planet. But the reason why the Paris climate agreement is so significant is we have always understood that in order to fight climate change, it has to be a global initiative. Like the United States is important because we, I believe last I checked, we had the highest emissions per capita Hmm. of any other country in the world. However, we're still a fairly small percentage compared to the rest of the world. And if we are only doing things alone, then we're not going to be able to fight climate change. But a global initiative like the Paris Climate Agreement, despite its limitations, is an important step towards that global solidarity in tackling Mm. climate change. And Joe Biden rejoining it was one of the best damn things he has done during his entire presidency. I agree. Along along similar lines, in November he unveiled a hundred uh, a one hundred country pledge to cut emissions uh, from greenhouse gas from methane um, at least thirty percent by twenty thirty, um, yeah. and joined another agreement to end deforestation. So yeah. you know multiple international agreements um, to fight climate change. Right, you know, right on the heels of a president prior to Joe Biden who not only snubbed the international community, but also, you know, uh, doubly snubbed it in, in the name of climate change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, another thing, another thing in climate change, um, he signed an executive order that directed the federal government to scale its power to achieve five goals. And this is specifically from the, the federal government. Yeah. So a hundred percent carbon pollution, free electricity by 2030, and this would be federal buildings, mm. federal federal government. Yeah. Um, 100% zero emissions vehicle acquisitions by 2035, including mm. 100% zero emissions light duty vehicle acquisitions by 2027, net zero emissions from fe- federal procurement no later than 2050, including a buy clean policy to promote the use of construction materials with lower embodied uh, emissions. This is straight from the uh, whitehouse.gov. 
a mm. net zero emissions building portfolio by 2045, including a 50% emissions reduction by 2032, uh, net zero emissions from overall federal op operations by 2050, including 65% wow. emissions reduction, 65 wow. by 2030. Hmm. Now, that is big. Yeah, that's huge. You can argue that a lot of that is does not go far enough, and yep. you know maybe it doesn't, but it is a significant step. Yeah, and and, and you would not get that under Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hands down. And and the other thing is like, if that's what you can do with an executive order, like yeah. if you get to like revamp revamp the federal government's impact on the climate, mm. then that's what you do. Like if that's what you can get done, do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, another important thing, and this, this probably is more speaking towards, um, specifically Democrats, uh, specifically Democrats that might be listening specifically, uh, progressive Democrats mm -hmm. and that's federal court appointments. So, and I, I actually just learned this. I, I had no idea about this. So Me Joe neither. Biden has actually confirmed 40 federal judges in in the first year of office which is actually the second most federal court judges of any president since reagan so mm -hmm. to put it into perspective biden 40 reagan 41 the next <clears throat> person uh george w bush and clinton tied with 28 in their first in their first year in their first year wow yeah, that it's means, twice as many, twice as many as Trump did in his first year. Yeah, he is. I mean, look, Trump got a bunch of Supreme Court appointments. Yep, heavy hitters. Yeah, but these are lifetime appointments. These are people that are going to shape the court for generations. You know, we yeah. often focus on the Supreme Court, rightfully so, because they have the final word. But there's a lot of stuff that happens in federal courts. That the Supreme Court just never hears. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this this might be my favorite part of this stat. 80% of those appointees are women. 53% are people of color. And that does matter. Yeah. Because when a policy is coming forward that specifically affects or targets these communities— People on the courts that actually understand what it's like are more likely to have a better understanding of what effect those policies might have. I know that yeah. a lot of people scoff at identity politics, and sometimes it can be used to detract when it's used by, like, you know, corporations, but it does matter. Representation yeah. does matter. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about you know, implicit bias, unconscious bias yeah. a lot on this show. We've talked about in the injustice system segments, we've talked about the fact that underrepresentation in the court system is like a significant problem, which leads to disparate results for communities of color, certainly. Um, and, and this is a step in the right direction. We've got like the, the legal field, especially the judiciary is dominated by old white dudes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a statistician to know that they are not the best at representing other people's interests. Yeah. 
So it's a, it's a step in the right direction for sure. Yeah. Another really big thing, and this this is something that kind of came out of nowhere for me that I mm-hmm. I think the Biden administration needs to I mean I don't I think I understand why the Biden administration doesn't publicize this as much because the message could be a little bit fucked up sounding and I'll explain why in a bit but Joe Biden has immensely scaled back the drone program mm. so in the first 11 months of Trump's presidency, he oversaw more than uh, 1,600 air and artillery strikes in Iraq and Syria. All right. Jesus. Do you know how many? It's like over three a day. Yeah. You know how many Biden has done so far? Four. What? Yeah. Four. Strikes in Somalia fell from uh, 75 to 10 with no civilian casualties, hmm. which I think that part, I mean, that's that the part I care the, the most, most about. important part. Yeah. Um, in Yemen, the annual total dropped from 18 to four. Hmm. Fewer than 10 casualties of any kind. All right. So, wow. I mean, I, I think that there, it, it could be that the optics of saying, Hey, we're killing way less civilians. I mean, I, I understand that, especially <laughs> better to let the sleeping dog of the fact that people don't realize we're killing civilians constantly just lie. <laughs> yeah. But like, I mean, look, we talked about the drone strike in Afghanistan that killed seven children and 10 civilians. And that was, that was huge. That was a war crime, but Biden has really internalized the messages that that we've talked about on the pod, which is the fact that when you drone strike civilians, you just create more terrorists and you just create more instability. Mm-hmm. So this is huge. Yeah, that's really awesome. I had no idea about that. Yeah, um, and those those numbers uh, I got from a uh, the week article. Mm. And it was based on an analysis from uh, Air Wars. Hmm. Yeah, similar on the foreign policy front, the the AUKUS deal, the AUKUS uh, submarine deal between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, which, you know, leave out the fact that, that France is pissed off. But aside from that, like, that is a, a pretty big strategic success in um, that, like, part of the world. Um It'll assist Australia in developing nuclear-powered submarines um, and deepen cooperation on on technical uh, technological development. Um, and Australia will consider hosting U.S. bombers um, on on their continent, which ultimately, like deepening and strengthening our ties with countries in that region, helping countries in that region become militarily sophisticated helps us stay kind of at arm's length, but also enact, you know, U.S. interests uh, in that area to kind of insulate us from potential increased China, like Chinese, like, activity, which we've talked about on this show. Like, a lot of people say a lot of shit about China that's totally BS. What's not BS is that they have international ambitions uh, attempting to rival, like, 
U.S. supremacy. Whether that's good or not is like a question, but you know, enabling countries to like like maintain their independence from like growing you know influence of any huge nation, I'm okay with. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a win. Yeah, another thing that's huge, and this is something that. If I were Biden, I would talk about this every fucking day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he raised the minimum wage of federal <laughs> yeah. contract workers to fifteen dollars mm-hmm. an hour, including eliminating the tipped minimum wage. Hmm. <laughs> wow! I mean, that's fucking wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. Jeez. Like, yeah, and, I that's mean, that's hundreds uh, of thousands of workers. Yeah. And along those lines, like overall, um, you know, during his presidency, wages and salaries paid even by private businesses rose 2.4% above inflation, Hmm. while disposable income grew grew 3%. Hmm. So, like, actual wage growth? What? (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. We've been talking about how wages have been stagnant for the last several decades. Yeah. And... I mean, that's not as much as we'd like it to grow, but mm-hmm. it's it's not just keeping up with inflation. It it's above inflation. Mm-hmm. That is yeah, great. It's, huge. <laughs> it's great. It's um, great. He also uh, he also declared he also raised the cap on refugees mm-hmm. to be allowed into the country. He brought back DACA. Yep. And oh, huge. And reinforced protections. Yes, huge. Um, I mean, he reversed Trump's ban on openly transgender uh, service members in the U.S. military. That's huge. He reversed the Muslim ban. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Was that was that still a thing? That's ridiculous. That was still a thing. It was it was upheld. (sighs) It was upheld. That was still a thing. His his DOJ also replaced the pause on federal U.S or like federal executions, which had been in place for 13 years prior to Trump. And then Trump, you know, pressed play again. Cause you know, what jazzes up a psycho more than executions. Um, and then, and then, you know, Biden put that pause back in place, which is in my opinion, great. Yeah. And you know what? I, I was debating with myself as whether, as to whether or not to include this, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I agree. I mean, look, if we divorced it from the uh, from the Build Back Better plan, then by itself, we'd give them credit. Yeah, it would be huge. And yep. look, I think that the way that he handled it was a strategic blunder. Yeah, but we're trying right now. We're trying to focus specifically on results, yep. and. It's definitely more positive than negative. All right. Yeah. It could have been bigger. It could have been much bigger. It should have been much bigger. And I'm not just mm-hmm. talking about social programs, including social yeah. programs in there. I'm talking about <laughs> traditional There's so much actual infrastructure stuff that would be great. It would be better to have in there. But it was a huge step, and he was able to get it passed through regular order. Yeah. It, yeah. Mean, <laughs> Which is crazy given this Congress. Like, exactly. Pretty exactly. amazing. So you know what? 
Yeah, I'm giving them credit for that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, yeah, and there's like a lot of other stuff that like just have kind of happened under his administration that, you know, may not have happened with a less competent executive. Things like unemployment falling falling from six point three percent to four point two percent, you know, which added like six million jobs basically to the economy. Um, uh, you know, we also had, we actually had our, our economy return to pre-pandemic output levels by like in the first half of 2021. Um, whereas every other G7 country didn't reach those levels until the second half of 2021. Um, and important to, to put to both those facts is like what enabled us to do that to get back to you know our economy humming along people getting back to work um you know going from 18 million filing for unemployment at the beginning of his presidency to 2 million um in december what enabled us to do that was the success of the vaccine program Without that, like those numbers would be shitty and dubious. Like we're forcing people to get back to work in the middle of a pandemic where there's no, you know, successful, you know, treatment or cure or, you know, protection or whatever. But in combination with the vaccine program, those are good things. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the big point that we do want to make is that we voted for Biden and we'd do it again. Yeah. And things are absolutely better than they were under Trump. And there's yeah. a lot of things, there's a lot of substantive things that we can point to to say, yeah, this is this is a major improvement. Yeah. I agree. If I were if I were grading Joe Biden, I'd give him a D plus. <laughs> and the reason for that is like, you know, for for every um major humanitarian crisis that you're fueling that costs you a letter grade. So, you know, uh, Yemen takes them down to a B Afghanistan takes them down to a C and then like everything else kind of, you know, takes care of the rest of that C, but D plus the fact that they've returned a hundred children of the 500 children that were like separated from parents. Yeah. That's another letter grade. (laughs) Um, yeah, but D plus is still passing. Yeah. I, yeah, as I was going through this list, like every single one of the bullets, essentially every single one, maybe not 100%, almost, come with caveats. Yeah. Like, this do. could have been better. We we would have liked to see this, but he accomplished this instead. All of all, everything we've said could be different and probably could be better. And I think it can be true that we deserve a perfect executive. Hmm. We deserve someone who, who will make no mistakes, who will deliver as perfectly as possible. But we can also realize that that's not a realistic expectation. Yeah. Right. We should be grading against perfection. Right. But, and that's why we do these critiques so often is like, we should never take our eye off the ball of arguing for what the right thing should be, what the the perfect thing should be, but we should celebrate and we should accept when we fall short of perfection, but we yeah. make progress and realize that it could be much, much worse, 
with Trump as president or DeSantis yeah. as president or any Republican yeah. as president. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was considering putting Afghanistan, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan on this list. Yeah. But I mean, until he freezes those, uh, until he unfreezes those sanctions, uh, he gets no credit on Afghanistan from me. Yeah. I think it's not yet. <laughs> can't yet be a win. Yeah. Really. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because, whoa, yeah, kickstart my heart, mm. let it never drop. Whoa, mm-hmm. yeah, baby, mm-hmm. kickstart my heart. Oof. That's nice. That's really nice. And you know what kickstarting my heart often does to the world? What? I think it makes the world a better place. I agree. I think having you resuscitated <laughs> makes the world a better place. <laughs> the I world's brighter that. with you in it. Nathan. You know what? I, I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> so, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week um, is an advocacy-related one. And related to our second segment, it, which is about voting, it is about voting. Uh, I like and voting. It is, I like voting. Voting's good. Voting is critical, some might say. Mm. Um, it is to advocate um, by reaching out to your state legislature uh, or, you know, telling... Like or advocating for a ballot initiative or whatever f- form it's taking in your state, if it is in your state, for ranked choice voting. Mm. So there's a bunch of states that currently have either um, a bill going through their legislatures or a ballot initiative to authorize and implement ranked choice voting. Um, if you have listened to this show, we did a deep dive on ranked choice voting a while back. Um, go look up that episode. It's like, it is an amazingly innovative way to make our democracy more democratic. Um, So if you go to www.fairvote.org, you can find a list of all the state legislation that is currently, um, you know, in the works to advance ranked choice voting. And you should, you know, reach out to your reps in your state. You should advocate wherever you can to help advance that ranked choice voting cause. Um, because it is one of the many things on the path to improving uh, voting and and representation in the U.S. And that's Tips for Good. So for our next segment, we're talking about voting. Specifically, um, right now on the floor of the Senate, there are two bills that have been brought up for debate. Both focused on improving voting rights and voting access in the U.S. Yeah. Specifically, in in a lot of ways, targeted at making it easier for people of color to vote, for Mm -hmm. poor people to vote, for disenfranchised people to vote. So naturally, Republicans are against it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So both have already passed the House. So, you know... In their current form, if they could pass the Senate, we would have actual voter rights reform done in the U.S., something that has not been done since, like, what, the 60s? Yeah, yeah. So I just want to read through what these would do. So so, uh, one of them is the John Lewis 
the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would update the Voting Rights Act, which specifically targeted uh, creating a higher threshold for whenever states that had a history of yeah. racism in uh, voting um, before they could change their voting laws. Yeah. Uh, I that's can I just pause there that that is like so critical so Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 like heat of segregation um, even though segregation was nominally illegal like people were still being disenfranchised by these laws and so in 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act they implemented this like pre enforcement review of voter uh, of changing voter laws in these um historically like in these in these states and localities that historically discriminated right and that was good law until 2013 when the supreme court in shelby county versus holder with a 5-4 majority struck down that formula in that law which was crazy it was part of kind of a long list of of uh decisions over about 15 years that that like you know, reduced voter rights, including Citizens United, um, which, you know, swept away federal prohibitions on undisclosed and unlimited corporate spending on federal elections. Um, included in that list is Rucho v. Common Cause, which uh, ruled that federal courts cannot overturn even the most extreme partisan gerrymandering. So all of those are like a kind of a long running history of Supreme Court decisions that have weakened voter rights. But Shelby County v. Beholder, which got rid of this pre enforcement review of voter changing laws, was like one of the most impactful of these decisions because, like, it's a pretty unique setup. It's pretty rare in U.S. law to enable federal or judicial review of a law before it goes into effect usually as we saw in our discussion of like the the texas abortion law you've got to like show harm you've got to get your case through the courts you've got to strategically get it up to a court that's high enough to review and or overturn it all that stuff this this enables review to occur before minorities are harmed by the changes of these laws and since 2013, that protection has just been, like, totally gutted. And so the law, you know, went from placing the burden of proof on government officials to show why they were seeking to change the law and that it wasn't discriminatory. And now it's on voters who are being discriminated against to bear the burden of proving that they are disenfranchised, right? Yeah. And immediately after the Supreme Court made that decision and gutted the Voting Rights Act, um, multiple states, including Texas and North Carolina, um, which were previously covered under the act, enacted new voter ID laws and restrictions, um, some of which were like later, you know, struck down because they're unconstitutional. But for that, you know, while those laws are in place, while those cases are winding through the courts, people are disenfranchised. And so it's so important that we implement that review so that people don't have to spend years without the right to vote while they wait for a case that may or may not be overturned by a Supreme Court that has shown a pattern of weakening voter protections. Yeah. And the justification for striking it down at the time was basically 
we've solved racism. <laughs> what? You, yeah. you think that a state with a history of racism is still going to be racist? You think that if given the opportunity, one of these southern states would try to disenfranchise black people? Pish posh. It's like, it's like saying, it's like saying, we haven't had a fire in this town that has destroyed a building in years. So we don't need a fire company. <laughs> sure, multiple buildings have been set on fire and the fire company has put out those fires, but yeah. we don't need them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other, the other bill is the Freedom to Vote Act. And this has a lot of stuff. I'm going to try to go through yeah. each of them relatively quickly. Uh, it expands early voting in all 50 states. Uh, it makes it so that election centers have to be open for at least uh, 10 hours per day. Mm -hmm. It expands mailing voting, mm -hmm. which is something that a majority of people did in the last presidential election. Yep. And importantly, uh, it allows for no excuse mail voting for every yeah. eligible voter. It makes election day a national holiday, which mm -hmm. again, that's one of those things like it, it, it's like when you heard that, uh, I, I think it was, I think it was Mississippi certified the 13th amendment in like 2013. <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, okay, good. But really, that wasn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, protections for individuals with disabilities, uh, voter validation specifically. So the voter validation thing, it makes it so that uh, states that do have voter ID laws have mm -hmm. to accept a wide range of forms of identification. It does not require forms of identification for states that don't have that. Yeah. But for those that do. It ha they have to allow a wide range of identification. So one of the mm -hmm. examples that I like to give is the fact that in Texas, you can use your concealed carry permit, but you can't use your student ID. <laughs> Which no one in their right mind that would support. That seems pretty were... biased. Yeah. Well, no one in their right mind would support that as an honest actor. Yeah, exactly. Um, thwarting voter suppression, so cracking down on deceptive and, in and intimidation practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, voting rights restoration, uh, countering long lines and related discriminatory practices. So one of the biggest issues that often happens, especially in deeply minority neighborhoods, are you put like one place that services yeah. a shit ton of people. And there are some states that pass laws saying that you couldn't provide food or water to people who were in line, mm -hmm. which... I mean, fascistic doesn't even begin <laughs> to describe that. <laughs> it's like blazing um, saddles. Like someone like <laughs> chewing gum online gets shot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, private, private right of action. So being able to mm. sue if you feel like your constitutional right was thwarted. That is um, huge, by the way. Like that is so big. We yeah. should be allowed to directly sue the people thwarting our constitutional rights if they do yeah yeah um restrictions on the politicization of removing election officials and related mm. safeguards mm. enhanced protections of ballots and records so if you'll remember the uh 
uh, Maricopa County audit that was, I mean, was basically led by a conspiracy theory website. (laughs) (laughs) So not allowing shit like that to happen. Yeah. Uh, A remedy for failure to certify results. So like if someone refuses Mm. to certify a result, you can sue their balls off. Uh, Redistricting reform. This is huge. Banning partisan gerrymandering and establishing clear neutral standards. If this bill did nothing else except that, it would be a win. Yeah. It It would would be be so impactful. It would be probably one of the biggest and most important parts of Joe Biden's legacy. If only that passed. Um, Procedural safeguards... Modernizing voter registration, automatic voter registration. Huge. Same day voter registration. Mm. Another no brainer. Like election registration. Like election day being a federal holiday, like same day and online voter registration is like, wait. Yeah. We don't already do that. (laughs) Well, okay, to be fair to online voter registration, forty two states already do that. Mm. So like that is such a no brainer. Even yeah. most Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've actually figured that one out. Yeah. Uh, protections against unlawful voter purges. You might have heard a while mm-hmm. back that Ohio had this huge voter purge for people that hadn't voted after a certain amount of time, which was just ridiculous. Um, campaign your, exercise, your right to vote only includes your right to actually vote. It doesn't include your right to not vote. <laughs> yeah. Um, campaign finance reform, uh, shoring Another up campaign one. transparency. Yeah. Yeah. So curbing dark money. Now, yeah. that's just about disclosure. It's not saying that you can't get money from these people. Yep. And honestly, I, I've i always felt like it was a bit of a red herring. Mm. Just I disclosure. Mean, yeah, just disclosure. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important, but a lot of this corruption does take place in broad daylight and people don't sure. care anyway. So yeah. until yeah. you prohibit it, like, don't, don't don't talk to me. Yeah. Uh, although although I do like the disclosure thing. Like yeah. it's it's the kind of thing that sets you up to be able to well, It allows people like, like you like and me to talk about how corrupt deals. people are, but who else is listening? <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> uh ensuring super PACs are truly independent. That I I don't know how. <laughs> because they're already supposed to be independent sure. and they aren't and no one cares. Hmm. So I'm not entirely sure what that's supposed to mean, but I don't know. Maybe that'll end up being bigger and I'm just not giving it enough credit. Uh, fixing campaign finance enforcement. So I- ensuring that the, uh, the Federal uh, Election Commission will investigate potential violations without being uh, stifled by partisan gridlock. So all of this analysis, by the way, comes from the um, Brennan Center. Yep. For, for, for justice. Uh, small dollar matching. I don't entirely understand that policy, but, um, you know, it's there. <laughs> uh, and then promotion, promoting election security. So requiring post-election audits, yep. requiring paper records and other election infrastructural improvements. So all of that is good. Yeah, there was like nothing offensive in these bills. Yeah, so naturally Republicans are against it. (laughs) 
Yeah, so so let's talk about where it stands. So currently, you know, in order to pass the Senate, as we all know, you need 60 votes under regular order, not 60 votes to pass a bill, but 60 votes to trigger cloture to end debate. Um, so basically you need 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. So even though all 50 Democrats support the bill, you know, in at least in theory, cinema and Manchin have like publicly supported, but apparently Manchin is like privately saying like, I don't know about this. It, you know, might, you know, people might, might be make, mad that I take so might much, allow you know, too many black people dirty to money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but at least nominally, like at least publicly, like 50 uh, Democrats support passing these bills, but all 50 Republicans oppose the bills. Um, and so as a result, we're stuck in the exact same position pretty much that we've been in with every regular order piece of legislation um, since yeah. the beginning of Biden's presidency, with the exception of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We are held up by the filibuster. Yeah. And Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are not relenting. So, yep. in fact, I, I believe that tonight when we're recording this yeah. on Wednesday, the, the, the Senate plans on having a vote to end debate which is yep. going to fail. Yeah. And then they plan on having a vote to change the filibuster back to the talking filibuster. Yep. Which by the way, that's what it originally was. Yeah. I don't know why. So so the talking filibuster is basically just requiring that you actually hold the floor debating, talking yep. In order for the filibuster to persist, you can't just be like, hey, I'm symbolically holding the floor. Debate is still open, but I'm still going to go on vacation and go home and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Um, like if you think if, if you're in favor of the traditional filibuster, like the filibuster is a longstanding democratic tradition. If you're in favor it's of really that, not. then <laughs> you should be in favor of the talking filibuster. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, what's kind of funny. Lately, there's been this old clip of Martin Luther King that's been mm -hmm. circulating where he's basically saying that right now we have a Congress that is making it so that legislation that is deeply supported by a majority of Americans is held up and held up by a small minority of people in the Senate that already resent a minority of people represent a minority. Yeah. Hmm. And because of the filibuster, that minority suddenly has all of the power. And what's interesting about that clip is he was talking about the talking filibuster. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even what it is now. Yeah. Like we're proposing the for it to go back to what it was yeah. when, when he was against it. Yeah. And it, I would yeah. just like to remind people, anybody who... Like like Kirsten Cinema, who keeps bringing up the proud history of the filibuster or whatever, or Joe Manchin. You want to know what the history of the filibuster is? First off, we did a whole deep dive on it. You should go check it out. But here's an important part of that history. You know who has the record for the longest filibuster? Do you know who that is, Michael? Um, I don't know anything about you're going to tell me. Strong Thurman. Mm. You know what he was filibustering? Uh, some voting rights or civil or uh, some kind the of civil, like civil rights. The, the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, he was protesting the Civil yeah. Rights Act. 
That is the history uh, of the, the proud history of the so yeah. The proud history of the <laughs> filibuster. Right? And and they are and they are like they have the audacity to push back against people that are referring to it as like the Jim Crow filibuster. Yeah. A pe- a, a, a Famously, Senate procedure. It is the Jim Crow filibuster. A Senate procedure that has held back like progress and legislation because all it does is slow things down or yeah. make them impossible, right? All it does is Think about the numbers involved here. Just think about it. Like, if the Senate were perfectly representative, we're almost always very close to a 50-50, you know, support of our, like, total population. Like, it's pretty, and that's by, like, that is by definition with a first-past-the-post voting system. You will be close to 50%. So in order for something to pass the Senate, it has to have 60% support. If even 41 people oppose it, then it's dead on arrival. Well, that makes also, no I mean, fucking that, sense. And that's giving it all the credit because that's pretending that the Senate is even representative in the yeah, first exactly, place. Exactly. Exactly. It's like it is it is it it just takes our representative democracy and immediately hands it over to like literally like 20% of people. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Manchin recently said that uh, curtailing the filibuster would, quote, fuel uh, would pour, quote, fuel on the fire of political whiplash and dysfunction that is tearing our nation apart. You know why we're so fucking dysfunctional? Because you can't do anything because of the goddamn filibuster. He's yeah. (laughs) Political whiplash that notice what he's saying. He's saying if we got rid of the filibuster, we'd be able to do too many things. Yeah. So he's the thing about Joe Manchin, he's specifically saying that right now he's telling you all of the shit that you're experiencing. Those of you who are living paycheck to paycheck, those of you whose wages are stagnant, those of you who can't afford health care, those of you who are drowning in student debt, those of you who are having your voting rights oppressed, those of you who are uh, who don't have access to broadband internet because of where you live, he's telling you that the status quo is worth fighting for. He is telling you that what is happening right now is okay. Your mm-hmm. life is good. Get over it. He is yeah. gaslighting you. That's what he's doing. And vo- voting rights would help solve those problems, would help like combat the like political whiplash, would help improve democratic representation, help rebalance the scales of our democracy. Um, and ironically... Yeah, I just pa- got like. <laughs> stopping that is unsurprising right like the fact that we have a system that prevents us from making decisions about how we make decisions in that system is a vicious cycle and it's not surprising i just got a news alert senate republicans again block bill to expand voter participation yeah. They're not honest actors. Yeah. Maybe if yeah. they were honest actors, something like the filibuster might make sense. They're not honest actors. Yeah. Everything that we read was no were just no-brainers. We have warned earlier 
on and on several occasions that one of the one of the signs of fascism is um suppressed and unfair elections yeah this is an attempt to to solve that problem people are being disenfranchised they are and anybody that is against these simple ass provisions they're behaving fascistically yeah. maybe they're not fascist but they're behaving fascistically yeah and you don't negotiate with fascism <laughs> i think one of the, i think the most one of the most telling quotes that has come out of this when you know when talking about a bill that expands voting access that makes uh, our elections more fair that enfranchises people that even like improves the security and auditability and reliability of our elections. When talking about that legislation, Mitch McConnell said it isn't about voting rights. It's a naked power grab because the corollary, the implication is that if elections are fair, Democrats win. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, I could not have more pride in my state to announce mm -hmm. that our asshat this week mm -hmm. is recent governor Glenn Youngkin. Wow. Of Virginia. Yeah, recently He's been governor elected. for one week, and already he's our asshat. <laughs> oh, that's the <laughs> that old dominion. That is impressive. That is very <laughs> impressive. All right, so what did Glenn Youngkin, the star of the Virginia gubernatorial election, do to make it on our show today? Yeah, star by virtue of keeping his head down. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, a few things. So he, 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 he signed a bunch of executive orders on his first day. Like one Typical. of them, which I'm just going to give a side note, was to end mask mandates for schools because, you know, fuck teachers. Teachers get COVID. Fuck you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. hey, you guys been... already have a cushy deal. All that money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Virginia's been doing a fairly decent job of fighting COVID. You know, we should be more like Florida. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> more COVID? Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. But the big thing that I want to focus on, there, there's sort of two things that he, there's one thing that he did and then something he had the audacity to say. Mm -hmm. So he signed an executive order banning critical race theory from being taught in schools. Now, reading his executive order, it's clear that he doesn't fucking understand what um, <laughs> what critical race theory is, because of course Which he doesn't. might work for our advantage, because he might be just outlawing shit that doesn't <laughs> happen. <laughs> yeah. So the executive order focuses on uh, not letting teachers teach about divisive concepts and it, it, he, he keeps using that term divisive concepts over and over again throughout the entire course of this executive order i've, I've gone through and, and read it and what's kind of funny is that the executive order uses some of the language of our asshat from last week which is the whole uh you need to be fair and unbiased and not impose your personal beliefs <laughs> which makes me wonder uh 
are you allowed to do that if you're talking about Nazis being bad? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's critical Nazi theory. <laughs> and and one thing right here that I found deeply offensive because because he, this is how he defines this is one of the ways in which he defines divisive concepts. Um, quote. An individual by virtue, this is teaching somebody this, an individual mm. by virtue of his or her race, skin color, ethnicity, sex, faith, or, or faith is racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or subconsciously. So basically, translation, you're not allowed to teach about implicit bias. Mm. <laughs> All right. You're not allowed to teach about implicit bias. Well, I guess my silver lining of not knowing what critical race theory is really went out the window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, he's trying to make it so that you can't teach about the concept of institutional racism in schools. Hmm. And he's pretending that it's an attempt to allow people to think for themselves. But you're not giving them all the information. One of the important things to recognize about critical race theory is that it is a theory, which means that it is taught as a theoretical framework mm -hmm. for looking at things. When people teach about critical race theory, they don't pretend this explains everything what yeah. they do is they discuss it as a theoretical framework for looking at things that if you are a well-rounded, educated individual, you have complementary frameworks to fill in the blanks. But, of course, he doesn't understand that because he's a fucking idiot. And the big part, the thing that landed him on the asshat on this podcast was that this motherfucker had the audacity to go on to Fox News and quote Martin Luther King Jesus Christ to justify this executive order. <sighs> he quoted the I mean and of course you know what what he quoted it was the uh, you know judging by the color of your skin and on the content of your character because that's the only that's the only Martin Luther King quotation that that Republicans have ever heard in their entire lives because you know they 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 can't figure out any fucking context to that <laughs> this piece of shit had the audacity to quote Martin Luther King to justify an executive order that prevents people prevents teachers from talking about implicit bias and discussing institutional racism Take his words out of your fucking mouth, you piece of shit. So congratulations. Fuck Glenn Youngkin, man. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations to Governor, Governor Glenn Youngkin for being this week's Asshat of, of the Week. week. So for our third segment, we're talking about legislation, um, even more generally than we might usually put a framework around legislation or policy or, or, or whatnot. Today, we're specifically asking kind of a fundamental question, um, which is, you know, what's the proper subject to legislate about, to legislate on? 
You know, like, so we've talked about a number of different frameworks for how good legislation might be determined from bad legislation or something like that. Um, but I don't think we've tackled the question before or attempted to, to tackle the question of like, what's the proper subject matter? What's the, what are the proper areas of life that uh, legislation should address? Yeah. And one of the one of the frameworks that I kind of want us to look at this from mm-hmm. is the concept of positive versus negative freedom, yeah. positive versus negative uh, liberty. Yeah. So to define those two concepts, uh, I want to turn towards Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So which, if you don't know, awesome source for like all awesome your source. philosophical questions. It's like yeah. really well put together. Yeah. So uh, negative liberty is the absence of obstacles, barriers, or constraints. One has negative liberty to the extent that actions are available to one in this negative sense. Positive liberty is the possibility of acting or the fact of acting in such a way as to take control of one's life and recognize one's fundamental purposes. Mm -hmm. So to put that another way, as, as they do... While negative liberty is usually attributed to individual agents, positive liberty is sometimes attributed to collectives or to individuals considered primarily as members of given collectives. Mm. So what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, let's break all that down. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I think, I think negative liberty is probably what uh, you might more traditionally consider to be liberty or freedom in like your libertarian approach. If someone yeah. says to you, like, I care about my liberty, I like the one thing I want is freedom, that's probably what they're talking about. Which is essential which is like the source of arguments that governments should be really small, it shouldn't be doing it shouldn't be very active, because the whole goal is to not have obstacles to yeah. action. Right? Yeah. It's all about you can do whatever you want to the extent that it doesn't harm other people. Yeah. So basically if I say, say, so, so currently the smoking age in the United States is 21. Say I were to say that it should go back to being 18. I would be arguing for a negative Liberty because I would be arguing for the removal of a restraint on your freedom. Yep. All right. On your action, on your action. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're talking about different kinds of freedoms. So, Uh, on on your action absolutely positive on the other hand positive liberty positive freedom understands the idea that even if you do have the the legal ability to do something or you are theoretically able to do something you're not always able to do something so to one of the analogies that's often given is say you have a city where they have a law saying that you can't sleep under a bridge Mm-hmm. The argument is a rich person and a homeless person are equally not allowed to sleep mm-hmm. under that bridge. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, theoretically it's fair, but of course the homeless person does not have the same opportunities as that rich person. Yeah. So, positive freedoms would be basically economic justice for that person. Basically... Yeah. If you don't have a house, you get a house. Mm-hmm. 
uh, if you don't have health care, you're given health care because having a house gives you the freedom to do other things. That is a yeah. there is a barrier in in the way of you doing certain things. You know, in, in many ways, if you don't have a house, you can't get a job. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have health care, you might not be able to survive. Everybody has the equal ability to get the same access to health care, but not everybody has the money to afford it. Yeah. So positive it's freedoms are about recognizing that theoretically you can get it, mm -hmm. but realistically you can't. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it. Honestly, better than the way that Stanford puts it in their encyclopedia. <laughs> so the thing is, like, like, negative liberty says to the world around you, don't touch me. Yeah. You can't prevent me from doing things. You can't prevent me from walking across the street. Positive liberty says... You know, if I'm in a wheelchair, you have to put in a ramp. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I can't get to the restaurant otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. I can't cross the street if there's two curbs and yeah. I'm in a wheelchair. So, and and those and, and like that dichotomy is they're often well, they're often displayed as working in tension against each other. Yeah. Um I would argue that like that's not always the case but the the times when we have to figure out the difference between the two uh and when that matters is when they are working in tension basically like with the presence of you know our interaction in the world scarcity things like that the argument is that like in a way not everybody can have access to everything yeah. and so there's a sense of like how do we figure out how to enable people to do things and achieve things with positive liberty without, you know, violating the negative liberty, which prevents us from, you know, infringing on people too much. Yeah. So then the question becomes, when does it need to become legislation? Mm. So I actually had a conversation with my dad a few months ago, actually, about the concept of worker-owned conglomerates. Yep. And we've talked about this in, in the past. And what he basically said was worker-owned conglomerates are a good thing, and there should be more of them, and the world would probably be a better place if almost every institution, every business was a worker-owned conglomerate. But, you know, then the next question is, should it be legislated? And he actually responded with an old argument that Republicans used to make in the 90s, which is that not everything that is good has to be policy, has yeah. to be a matter of public policy, mm -hmm. which I would say to an extent is definitely true. Yeah. So then the question becomes, at what point does a good thing need to be public policy? Yeah. So I think when we're talking about negative freedoms in the context of like laws that prevent you from doing certain things or restriction of negative freedoms. I think I have a fairly open or closed interpretation mm -hmm. of when, when the government should step in. Like, for example, I, I mean, I use the example of, of smoking cigarettes. I disagreed when we raised the smoking age yeah. from 18 to 21. I, I disagreed with that. I did not disagree with it on the grounds that smoking is great. It is not. 
I have never smoked a cigarette in my life and I don't plan on ever smoking a cigarette in my life. I've maybe smoked 10 cigars in my entire life Mm -hmm. or so. I like, I I just, I don't smoke. And I think the world would be a better place if no one was addicted to tobacco, but it should be a person's personal choice if it's only affecting themselves. So even though non-smoking, I think is a good thing, it does not have to be a matter of public policy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's for right. Adults, and I, I should I should specify that for yeah, adults. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think like I think it's tempting often to in the service of good things. Um like it's tempt it can be tempting to try to sacrifice negative liberty. Yeah. Right? It would be better if no one smoked. You yeah. would be more free if you didn't smoke, if you weren't addicted to cigarettes, you would have more money to go enact the things that you value in your life and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, in a lot but, of ways, but, you'd have more positive freedoms. <laughs> yeah, and in a lot of ways, you've had, you would have more positive freedoms. But I think you're right that, like, in a way, I think the right limitation on the, on the implementation of, on the, on the fostering of positive freedoms is that, like, that negative freedom threshold like at the point you know and and i think then it becomes a matter of like legislative strategy like what like what are you putting in place to help foster positive freedoms to help foster good choices without violating the threshold of like leaving people alone so they can make their own decisions autonomously and that that and to me that comes back to like a strategy we've talked about, a legislative strategy we've talked about in the show, which is the the strategy of like um, uh, libertarian paternalism, right? Where you set up legislation that doesn't force things, but like, you know, gives incentives to make good choices, right? Like, and and help and helps you know fund the uh, fund advertising against smoking, right? That's not a violation of anyone's negative liberty helps foster positive freedoms by fostering good behavior that are positive, um, but isn't something that's going to be infringing on your individual right to choose to smoke if you prefer. Um, And so like the concept of libertarian paternalism is essentially like setting up, um, setting up, you know, programs, legislation, laws that are as least restrictive as possible while setting up incentives to get people to do good things and make good choices. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that we've, in in a lot of ways, we've often almost pounded to death our threshold for when negative liberty should be imposed upon, Mm. which, I mean, I, again, I've said this a thousand times for me. It's (laughs) as, it's as simple as, you know, wave your fist around all you want, but that freedom stops when it hits my face. Yep. I think so that's right. As long yeah. as you're not hurting anybody else, you should be allowed to do what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think as an that, adult. As yeah. An and adult. I think at that point, that's when it comes to that's when like the question of the type of legislation comes into play. Right? Yeah. Like outlawing something is one thing, right? It's very easy to see when you can outlaw punching someone in the face. <laughs> yeah. And and um, it is. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, But like, 
incentivizing people not to wave their fists around to help prevent accidental face punches <laughs> <laughs> is is something you can also legislate, something you can also put into place um, to help, you know, yeah, to help like organize things. So I think like I think it's easy to think and and, and in a lot of contexts we're just set up to respond like when government action happens, coercion is in play. When government action is present, someone is being forced to do something. I think that's a very simplistic and not a very innovative and not a very strategic way to approach legislation because so much of what the government does is about helping people to do the right thing. You know, yeah. like everybody should have access to healthcare, right? That doesn't like, and, 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 Note that doesn't mean like everybody is forced to pay for insurance. Those are different things. You and we should figure out the way to get everybody access to healthcare without forcing everybody to pay for insurance. And that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which then would bring us to to positive freedoms. Yeah. So then the question is what's the threshold for when a positive freedom should be upheld? And I think that my interpretation of this is a little bit more is definitely definitely more liberal mm -hmm. and i mean like when i say liberal i mean you know uh capital l capital yeah. d democrat <laughs> yeah, yeah like well, well well not even not even just just ideologically liberal in the context of american politics but liberal in the in a sense of open-ended uh-huh because yeah. i think that there are some things that are public goods to the point where um, mm. they just become no-brainers. I think that there are some yep. things where if they are not off the table, you do not truly have an equal opportunity. Mm. Because, some, yeah. because some people are born in families in which they just, they can't, they, they, they're not going to be able to go as far as other people, yeah. right? A person who was born in a family that can't afford to send you to college, that struggles to to pay your your medical debt, yeah, or struggles in some to case, you know, have nutrition and food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A family that w is within those those confines is not free. Yeah, like it does not have positive freedoms. And I think that positive freedoms are an important part of a free society. Yeah. If 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 I live in a family where if I break my leg, we might have to turn off the heat for a month. Mm -hmm. That's not free. Yeah. That's not me being able to do what I want to do. Yeah. And I didn't choose that family. Sure. Which I think I think I think one of the best ways I would I would argue, and this is kind of this is bringing it all the way back to veil of ignorance. <laughs> yes, yes, you, you got it, you caught it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we talked about that like what our, our second or third episode ever. Yeah, it's been a reoccurring thing. Like, man, this segment is really bringing like drawing yeah, through so many a, threads. Throw, of this show. Throwback Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> or Thursday for for people that are listening to this when it's when it's first posted. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I would I would bring it back to the veil of ignorance so for yeah. those of you that don't know the veil of ignorance is basically it's basically a, a a philosophical uh exercise where we say all right let us let's imagine that you're starting off on a completely blank blank slate 
Yeah. And you can you can create a society and you can design it whatever way you want. All mm -hmm. right. You get to decide um, what is going on in society, who the more powerful people are, who the less powerful people are, how you gain power, how you choose who the powerful are, all of that. You get to design all of that stuff. Yep. But the one choice that you're not allowed to make is who you are born as in that society. Yep. So, you know, most people, when they hear something like that, I mean, there are a few things that are immediately off the table. It's like, oh, well, obviously slavery is going to be illegal because yep. I don't want to risk being born a slave. Um, but I would, I, I would go ahead and say the best way to understand positive freedoms would be to start with that veil of ignorance where it's mm -hmm. okay. What, to what level should people have equal opportunities in this society? So that way, no matter who I'm born as, I still have the opportunity to thrive. Yeah. And in order to do that, you got to have positive freedoms. Yeah. There's yeah. just, yeah. There's just no other that, way. You have to have both. And I think that's, I think ultimately like that's where, the big difference between um, conservative and liberal, small C, small L, like approaches, like that's how they differ. Like the conservative approach says negative freedoms are all we need, full stop. Yeah. The liberal approach says maybe only we we only need negative freedoms. We want positive freedoms, and it's and those are still the government's job, still the government's purview, and. They're what we need to make the kind of society that we want to have, that we want to be a part of, where we wouldn't balk at being the least well-off in our society. Hmm. And, like, in some ways, like, reconcile, like, making that argument that that actually is the role of the government to fulfill is has to be kind of a starting place for having these more policy focused, more tactical conversations about how to implement, how to balance those positive freedoms to get to a good society. And with that, we will end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that classes have started and I'm really excited to get to know my new students. I had my first set of classes today because yesterday was canceled and Monday was Martin Luther King Day. And I'm just, I'm excited. I, I love teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I am always inspired, especially at the beginning of the semester before you're all stressed out um, <laughs> by like how much you like to return to your job and like, yeah. teach kid, teach students and yeah. you know help shape young minds younger yeah. minds than yours <laughs> yeah i mean i mean at the end of the semester i'm still it's still fun but it it is i am at the point where i'm just like okay we're let's, let's this is still this, this is work <laughs> <laughs> let's wrap this let's wrap this up <laughs> yeah for sure yeah uh what about you michael what's your highlight i think my highlight this week is like i'm just super jazzed about the pod right now like yeah. i'm like thinking a lot about you know, promotion and growth. And we've got like some, uh, some pretty exciting news that we'll probably share later on about, uh, about, you know, potentially being on another podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, 
and we'll share those details when those things finally come together. Um, but I'm just like really excited uh, for the future for 2022 for where we we take this project. Yeah. Um, and super thankful to have uh, you as my partner and to have all you guys as my my listeners. Oh, love you too, bro. Love you, bro. Um, and uh, <laughs> and hey, you know, if you're listening, tell your friends about us. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.